always to get to preach the Word of God, and it's great to be with you tonight. Uh, when Chris asked me if we were going to be around and I'd be able to speak a little bit, I jumped at the opportunity. And so because you are here and because there is definitely somewhere else that you could be tonight, whether that's at home in your chair or at home in front of your television set, I, I will take that as your endorsement that you too are just as excited about hearing the Word of God preached and as excited about spiritual things as, as I am tonight. Tonight we are going to talk about discerning the will of God, a little topic like that. How shall we know what God wants from us and, and for us and, and, and of us? It's, it's a hard topic, not because it's really hard, but hard because it is so encompassing of all of our life. In fact, everywhere we turn, depending on who we are and how saturated our life is with spiritual things, wherever we turn, we could begin to ask those questions. Well, what does God want of me this, in this situation or that situation? Does God want me to turn left or does He want me to turn right? Does God want me to do, go this way or that way, do this, do that? Does He want me to date this girl or date that girl? Yeah. Of all the thousands and millions of questions we're faced with in our lives, sometimes we can even be paralyzed through the analysis of what would God have of me in all those different situations. So tonight, hopefully, we can, can reduce some of those things and simplify in finding just a little bit of answer. And I want to start by, by asking us to consider with all of the millions of questions that might pertain just to your life and your situation, that multiplied by the six and a half billion, seven billion folks that are currently alive, plus all the other people that have come and, and all those that will be in the future. I'm not saying that God doesn't have the computing capacity or, or the large enough heart to, to care about every single situation and every permutation of idea that, that is within our lives. But I, I wonder, I really wonder if God has a purpose and a need for, to, to superintend over all of those decisions. I know He could if He had purpose to. God if he needed to, to make a, a, a fine adjustment to my life, if he needed to intervene in any small part, doesn't the Bible say that he numbers every hair on my head? Sarah is laughing because in the last few years I've made that job easier for him. I know he could, if he wanted to, attach a significance to each one of those hairs and say not a single one will fall. I know he could look out over the parking lot and he could say, you know, there are just too many white vehicles here and we need a few more green ones and a couple of blue ones. He could. He's God. He can do anything. But of all of those decisions and all of those possibilities, God is concerned with the things that make a spiritual difference in our lives. We, on the other hand, are so concerned with the mundane things. And mundane means, by definition, the things of this world. And we get so caught up in them. And we attach such significance to all of our little problems. And we think that God is just as worked up about them 
as we are. And I think we begin in that process to make God in our own image. And so maybe that's a preview of many of the things that we'll talk about tonight. With any of the decisions we have, is it right to ask for wisdom? Doesn't James chapter 1 say, if you, if you lack wisdom, pray for it. And God isn't stingy. He will give it to you because he wants us to make wise decisions and decisions that honor and glorify him. And so to some of our issues, I, I would ask, does, does it honor or glorify God more if my pickup is maroon or if it is white? If God needed it to be maroon, he could make it that color. But does that serve any of his purposes? Maybe the question should be about discerning his purposes more than discerning a particular answer for a situation that is on my heart. I get the feeling as we are so self-absorbed, and it's easy to be that way. It's the only life we've ever known, isn't it? It's like asking the ant to be concerned with the things that we're concerned with. The ant has very little capacity to, to understand our kind of life and our problems and our situations. We are so concerned with what we shall eat, with what we shall drink, with what we will wear. And if Jesus had something to say, that I would say to that and those concerns, what do you suppose he might say? People who, who lack faith, people who lack a big-picture appreciation for who God is, they run about like chickens with their heads cut off. They run about worrying about those things. And there's the contrast between those Gentiles who worry about such things and wring their hands over such things and the person of faith. Now, let me ask you this. Have you seen that, that diagram of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay, if, if you've, if perhaps you've seen that, and, and there are there are definitely needs in life. Some of the most basic needs that a person might have are what you might eat, what you might drink, what you might wear, where you might sleep. Those are basic and fundamental needs. God is actually not saying those things are unimportant, but. What is he asking us to do? Not concern ourselves with those things, but to have a higher perspective. If you remember the rest of that, that quote and that scenario that he sets up in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about what you will eat and drink and wear. What should you concern yourself with? But seek first what? This can be interactive, you know? It's Sunday night. Seek first what? His kingdom and His righteousness. And God takes care of all the little stuff. And to me, it's not little stuff. But in the perspective of an almighty God who looks down from heaven from eternity to eternity, it's all little stuff. Now His stuff, His kingdom and His righteousness, those are big things. And those are things worthy of my attention, of our consideration, of our fascination, and of our involvement. And he says, if you will worry about those things, worry is the wrong word. If you will concern yourself with those things, if you will be invested in those things, your trust in me to take care of the rest means it will all shake out. 
And it sounds easy while you're preaching it. But then how, how shall we live it out? And what does that mind look like? That mindset that moves us through life to cast all of our cares and all our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. Well, we would have to have a, an appreciation for the fact that He cares for us. When, when we say all of the little things in my life are small and perhaps God is not as concerned with those things, that is not to say that God is not concerned with us, is it? In fact, to look at the Bible, to read any of the great stories from, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation says what? That God does love us, that God is concerned with us, that God has intervened through time and space and history to do what? God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him or believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. That's not a story of a God who does not care. But it's a story about a God who cares about the big things and who gives us a portion and a share and an opportunity to participate in the big things. Really, that's what God is doing. He's, he's elevating our minds. He's bringing us along. He's saying, the world does care about all of those things, but you, change your mind and be like me and let your mind be elevated. You remember Colossians chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, then fix your mind where? Above, where He is. Have a more noble-minded, a higher-minded perspective on everything. Because of your association with Jesus Christ, because of your relationship with Him, because of the transformation that has occurred, because of being found in Him. The question, question is, as we think about discerning the will of God, how we approach Him we often ask four questions. Super Bowl is tonight. And I'm kind of like you. I, I didn't grow up in the, in the continental United States. We left when I was four years old. Daddy moved us to Hawaii. And then, then here's, here's the fun part. When I was 11, we moved from Hawaii to the middle of Siberia. Missionary kid. And they don't play football in Siberia. So we, I missed that one. But I, I have seen, I have read, I've done a little digging. Uh, they, the Newsweek did some, some polling. And a full quarter of Americans believe that God is the one who will decide who wins the game tonight. That, and I don't know the, the mechanics of how that worked. The, they, the survey didn't go deep enough to, to ask, is it the people who, the, the fans that pray harder on one side or on the other side? Or is it the, the players that have a greater uh, piety on what, you know, we're talking about the piety of sports figures here, so I'm not really sure. But somehow or another, people are convinced God is the one. In fact, 25% were specifically convinced that God would decide which team, and there was almost 60% of Americans, this is not just, this is not just Christians, but uh, Americans in general, 
who believed that uh, God would at least give favor to those athletes who were good moral people in tonight's game. And so those folks who are praying for some kind of divine intervention, for the wind to shift that way or this way, for the lights to shine in this guy's eyes, and that, all of those questions, as they pray, whose team is God rooting for? Well, their own team, of course. When we bring God down to our level and say, God, here are the problems in front of me. Here's, here's what I'm dealing with. And I want your opinion, the Eagles or the Patriots, or whatever the situation may be. I don't think that God has spoken to those things. And so we listen Eagles, Patriots, and we listen in for you know, we listen for the for that still small voice and it's not there. And so then what do we suppose that we do? Well, I think, I feel, I kind of go this way, I go that way, and, and all of a sudden, before too long, you have rationalized an endorsement from God Himself for your team. And it's funny, God always likes the same things that I like. And he's always for the same things that I'm for when I begin to bring him down to my level. And I begin to push God into a mold of someone who is concerned with the same things I am concerned with. And therein is a danger. Christianity is not about bringing God down to my level. He's already done that, hasn't he? He's already taken care of, of, of the relationship, of it coming down to our level. And having been here, he intends to pull us up to his level now. So let us turn loose of this fascination with this world and trying to get answers for questions like that and just say, God, I want to know what things concern you. I want to know your will. And I would suggest tonight that, that it's not so much about us asking God's will for our own lives as if there is a particular road map that says turn right here, turn left here, root for this team at this moment. Do that. But it is much more about identifying the will of God, the cosmic and grand will of God. And by, by cosmic, I just mean that as you zoom out as far as possible to get the grandest scope of what God has been about from beginning to end, that you try to wrap your minds around that and say it's not about God deciding little things in my life as, as, much, as it is much about me conforming my life to His will. Does that make sense? Is that, is that, is that, are, we, are we hearing that? It's not God decide the little things for me. It's God, paint me a picture of what life ought to be. Speak words of wisdom and let me conform my life to your will rather than the other way around. That's what God has been doing. That's why He gave us the Scriptures to teach us wisdom and to expose Himself to us. That's why He gave us Jesus so that we could see the Scriptures come to life. So that we could see God being a man and what that would look like. So that there would be no question. What does God want? Who is God? What is He about? 
What does he love? What are his favorite things and who are his favorite people? And then my life becomes about becoming more and more like him. If, if you and God, silly illustration, if you and God were to go down to Brahms, would you know what flavor of ice cream to get him? It's a silly question, but let me put it to you this way. If you and your spouse went to Brahms, and your spouse said, I'll be right back, they went to the grocery store part, and you were at the ice cream counter, would you know what their favorite is? Or would you know what two or three favorite bets are? See, that's knowing someone well enough that when they're not there right beside you, you can still act just like they were right there. Have you spent enough time with your spouse that you know what they like, that you know who they are, that even in the times that they're not there, you can say, well, I, I know this person well enough. Here's what they do. Have you and I spent enough time with God that even if we didn't have a Bible right in front of us, or even if the Bible did not speak to, to a specific nuance of our situation, that we could say, I've been with God long enough. He and I are good enough friends. I, I have a perspective. I have an insight because our hearts have grown together that I know what he would do. I know what he would say. I know how he would act. Joshua chapter 5 is one of my favorite stories of God correcting a man, a well-intentioned, good, and heroic man. But, but Joshua chapter 5 is, is the occasion of, of the general wisely surveying the battlefield the day before the encounter at Jericho. And Joshua goes up, and from a particular vantage point, he can see the battlefield, and he's meditating. Surely he's praying. He's thinking about all the things that will unfold in the next day or two. And as he's standing there, he senses a presence behind him. And like any good soldier, his hand goes to his sword, and he's ready to draw his sword. He turns around, and before he does, he asks the man, Whose side are you on? Are you on our side, or are you on their side? And what has Joshua done? He's... He's seen this situation only in, in his own limited terms. And the only people that are here surely are on our side or on the side of the Canaanites, the soldiers of Jericho. And how does this commander of the armies of the Lord answer? I'm not for you and I'm not for them. I am for God. And the question, Joshua should be put to you. Just whose side are you on? Joshua, is it about trying to pull God down to being on your side or their side? Or is it about you making sure that you are pursuing the will of God? That what you are doing is in conformity with His character and His intentions and what He has revealed about Himself. And so Joshua gains perspective that he's not the one in the driver's seat. But God is the one who is in control and He is there to participate and go along with God. I want us to look at a couple of passages. Go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2. And the sermon just got a little longer and it's Jerry Canfield's fault because he 
made us look at Romans 2 this morning in Bible class, and it brought on some good thoughts. And there's nothing wrong with a sermon that goes a little long, right? Knowing the will of God is about knowing Him. And if we know Him and how He lives, how He walks, and what He says then even in the absence of a direct revelation about a particular issue or doctrine or thought or situation, we will be able to act as though he was right there. And I want us to begin reading. This is, this is the challenge that Paul's readers are given. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. He says, If you call yourself a Jew and then rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, Because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having uh, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so if you'd ask any of these folks, do you know the law? Yes. Can you approve of what God approves of and and, and, and be disgusted by the things that God is disgusted as he says here in, in verse uh, 18. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Do you know the will of God for your life? Or do you know the will of God that you can, can conform your life to it? They would have said, sure we do. And yet what is Paul's condemnation? You say you know it and yet just as surely as you preach this, what are you guilty of? the very thing against which you preached. Just as surely as you would teach someone to come away from the other of what are you guilty, you've done that very same thing. He says to know the will of God, to be able to prove of the will of God, is not just to have memorized the facts of the law. Memorizing facts is easy. At least it is easy relative to the real work of the transformation of the heart. If we want to know the will of God, if we want to be able to live within the confines and the bookends that is God's will, if we want to live a life that is pleasing to Him, He must have our heart. It's impossible. It is impossible. For us to live within the will of God unless he has our heart. Ignorance, well there's, there's enough ignorance within me that we, you can live within the will of God and be ignorant of certain things. There is weakness, there is provision for weakness in knowing the will of God. But you cannot live within the will of God unless he has your heart. Continuing into the next section here, verse 25, 
He says, for circumcision is of value if you obey the law. Now, of course, he's speaking to people from a Jewish background here. They would have boasted in their circumcision, boasted in their position, boasted in their descendancy from Abraham. But he says, circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. We'll skip down to verse uh, 27. Then uh, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For one is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He says, if you are this God-fearer in name only, if you are only a Jew in the externals, you are no Jew at all. And this is nothing new. Uh, Let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10. When Paul says circumcision is of the inward man and not just of the external, that's nothing new. He's going back to Moses and he's bringing, reminding them of those things. This is the way it's always been. Is in recent times, I mean, in our generations, we have somehow had this idea of in the Old Testament, God was concerned with externals, and in the New Testament, God is concerned with the heart, and that's, that's just wrong. God has always been concerned with the inward man. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love upon your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Listen to this. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, And be no longer stubborn. What was the problem with the people in in Moses' day as he's writing these words? They were stubborn. What was the problem when Paul is writing to the Romans? They were stubborn. It's a good thing you and I aren't stubborn, isn't it? What's the problem with people today? We are stubborn. And stubbornness is nothing else than a clash of wills. Where you and I say that we want to know the will of God. If all it is is an intellectual exercise to have memorized facts about what the will of God is, then I guess you get your merit badge and you move on. You've memorized some facts. But the challenge from Deuteronomy to Romans to today is that your heart is what would have this hardness cut away from it, that your heart is what would be made vulnerable to the will of God, that it being submitted to God would always say, you, God, you create the confines. You, you define what is right and what is good and what is lovely and what is admirable and excellent and praise. You define all those things, and then you, I will give you control of my life that you can squish my life into that mold. 
rather than trying to take bits and pieces of who God is and decorate my life with bits and pieces of God and say, look at how lovely it is. See, I obeyed God over here and, and over here. and over. No, no, no. God has all of our life, and he molds it and constructs it. If you kept reading in Deuteronomy all the way through that whole 11th chapter even, it's this back and forth discussion about you give your, your heart to God and then you serve Him. You give your heart to God and He takes it and based on His character and His actions, which, are, which of course are always together, never in conflict, He recreates a people for Himself. Now back to Romans. This will be our last passage of the night. So if this is how it works, that God reveals his will, and then I give my life to him to be squished into that will, molded into that will, conformed to that will. Maybe we could read Romans chapter 8. We won't, but... I'll quote it. This is the the destiny of all those who have been saved, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That means the mold or the container into which God pushes us and squeezes us looks like what? It's Jesus. And He pushes us into that. He'll say the same thing, just different words. Same thing here in Romans chapter 12. We, We know these Words. This is one of those famous passages that I'm sure is underlined in your Bibles. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, well, this says spiritual worship. I, we'll talk about this another time. Spiritual worship is a lousy trend. Reasonable service is what it ought to be. But just take my word for it and we'll check it later. But it makes sense. It's the right response. That's the gist. To give your life to God. And do not be conformed to this world. That is the questions of this world. What color should my pickup be? Who should I fall in love with? What, uh, what team ought to win the Super Bowl? Does God want me to have Wheaties or checks? Whatever the questions might be. Do not be conformed to this world. And I'm sure some in Paul's mind also you could say, and do not bring God down to the concerns of this world because it's not about matching things up to this world. What is it about? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed into what? Better question grammatically is be transformed into whom? into Jesus and into his likeness by the renewal of your mind which teaches us what we may have to learn to ask better questions we may have to learn to not be concerned with all those other things that have concerned us so much all these many years but our mind must reflect the concerns of Jesus and ask the questions that Jesus asks so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He told the Jews back in chapter 2, you think you 
can approve what is the will of God. That if somebody asked you a question, is this what God wants me to do, that you could tell them yes. He said, you have no authority to do that. Because when I look at your life, I can see that your heart has not been given to him. And you are only answering from facts you have memorized rather than experience of having walked with God and having lived with him and having sought his will and having him circumcise your heart and remove the hardness. The Christian, he says, but you, you having submitted your life to God and allowing him to put you into that mold that is Christ Jesus that through that process you have learned how to approve what is the will of God, what is good. Are you and I equipped to know what is good? In the eye, very eyes of God, big picture stuff, can we know what is good? Yes. Can we know what is acceptable to God? Yes. Can we even know what is the perfect will of God? Yes. As we look at Jesus, as we ask the better questions, the spiritual questions, the questions that pertain to God's will as they unfold through time and space. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Brothers and sisters, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus every day and make it our goal to be less like ourselves and less concerned with ourselves and more like Him, to love like He loves and to have our minds fixed on things that are above. If there's any way that we can serve you tonight, if there's any need that you have for prayers or encouragement, uh, if you need to respond to the invitation in any way, this is the time to do it as we now stand and as we sing.